Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, folks. 2020 has, to put it mildly, presented some challenges for all of us. You know, the good news, our patrons' numbers are still growing, almost daily. I truly, truly cannot thank all of you enough for your support. It's been overwhelming. And for those of you who've had to reassess your budgets, please know, I totally get it. And I will always be grateful for your belief in this program and the power of great content. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tack box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. Our patrons make all of this possible. The funds are specifically designated only for overhead. They literally keep the MP3s rolling. Meanwhile, the patrons-only After Dark Facebook Live and Zoom meetings each month truly have been a fabulous success. Conversation, support, laughter, some education, some mentorship, lots of encouragement, and even, randomly, the occasional adult beverage. So click the link at www.puredogtalk.com and become a patron today. Your small contribution helps make a huge voice for purebred dogs. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And today we have part two of our episode. Thank you all for joining us. Okay, so passing the mic... Who has questions? We're going to start over here. <laughs> Cheyenne was right on it. This is our young up and coming. Hit it. From you two, Brian Sylvie, pretending this Brian is not here. What do you guys really think of this new system being in it? I mean, you're kind of going through it. Do you think it's better than the one you probably started working on and why? And for you, I mean, you said you haven't been reviewed since 2001. Are you looking forward to that process again? Or do you wish no, they would just <laughs> pretending Brian's not here? <laughs> would you rather they continue to not review you? Because no. you'd be like, no. Doing it. no problem. <laughs> so, that question. <laughs> okay, I have no problem with the way it is set up now that you have a discussion. Mm-hmm. Everyone can learn from a discussion. Some of the people in the past in Brian's position maybe came along too harshly. Why did you put this dog third and I would have put it fourth? Who cares? <laughs> you know, if you have the best dog and you missed it, you left it out of the ribbons, then we maybe have a discussion. But we have a discussion which I believe people like Brian and most of the people now will have a discussion. And if you can say, well, did you realize it? Maybe it had a bad bite. Some things that, from outside the ring, you as exhibitors, you get a totally different aspect of a dog if you see it up close than if you see it outside the ring. And I have no problem 
Sure, any system is going to be flawed. Does this one have some things that I would change? Probably, but it's far better than the giveaway they had before. Okay. And that's all I can say about it, is the last one was a giveaway. It was a complete farce. <laughs> okay, Sylvie? Okay, so I've been through three systems. I started with the essay system. I'm a grant writer, so I love that system. It's just like right up my alley. I'd probably have a whole group by now if we just stuck with that. But I guess I want to say something about the most recent change to the system. Yes, some judges took advantage of it. Some judges advanced far faster than they should have. A lot of us did. A lot of us played by the intent, not just the way you could work the system. So it feels somewhat like the most recent changes caught some people in a net that we weren't doing anything wrong to begin with and we were taking our judging seriously. So that, you know, that's sort of like, really guys, I feel like my hand is getting slapped because some kid in the back was throwing spitballs. Do you know what I mean? But I think that the system is very accessible and understandable. It's clear what you need to do. And I think it doesn't reflect anything that hasn't always been a value. Kennel visits are a value. Having a long-term mentor is a value. Being tutored by people who are not your long-term mentor because they bring a different perspective on that breed is a value. Going to national specialties is expensive and that's just a fact. But honestly, you're never going to see the depth of quality in a breed that you're going to see at a national specialty. And if you really want to judge a breed, you should go. And if that means that it slows you down, it slows you down. I have travel booked this year so far for five national specialties. Some in hounds, some in working, which I hope to do at some point in the future. And I guess this question you get asked, but one of the messages that I wanted to give is start early. Do a lot of things to acquaint yourself with the breeds that you really love. Focus first on the breeds that you truly love and enthusiastic about because then it won't be a burden to you to do those things. And get it down on paper because if it's not down on paper in Casey's world, it does not exist. So if you don't have the paper, all those hours that you spend talking to someone, it's just wind as far as they're concerned. So definitely document everything. I just want to add something on the observations when we do these JBCs, judges breed commentaries. There are times where, most of the time, where I standing outside the ring and you all, everybody judges, so to speak, from outside the ring, but oftentimes I will not see eye color, I won't see bites, I won't see what's actually underneath the hair. So that makes an interesting conversation. I had a gentleman, I watched him do Rhodesian Ridgebacks a couple years ago, and I followed him right to the tee with what he had in his dog classes. He had 10 dogs and he boom, 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 did them. And I, okay, you're, we're good, we're good. And then he had 20 bitches and he got into his bitch classes and about the third bitch class, all of a sudden he takes a right hand turn and I don't know what's going on. I can follow, but it doesn't follow what he's done previously. So when we sit down and talk about it, I say, talk to me about your entry. He starts out, boom, right off the bat. I hated my class dogs. 
I hated them. And I just judged them because they looked like Rhodesian Ridgebacks, but they were bulky and they were long and they were this or they were that. And he said, once I got into my bitches, I started to find stuff that I liked. I liked a smoother neck into the shoulders that I found in my bitches that I didn't have in my dog classes. You know what? You win as a judge. There's no argument. I can't argue with that. And I applaud you. And that's where we talk about the discussion. We just have a give and take. When I might say, between your first and second in the open class, tell me how you made your decision. And he'll say, well, my eye was drawn to the second dog right away. But once I put my hands on him, you know, it was a drop-coated dog, a bearded collie, I think it was. And he said, I went over the body and it was the second place dog. I had this beautiful coat, beautifully presented. There was nothing underneath the hair. It was a tube, you know, and I need to have body in that breed. Bingo, you win. I don't argue. There's no argument here. You know, you explained how you made your decision. If he had said, the first dog, I would like to have seen more body. The second dog had a beautiful body and had, and then I'll say, well, Continue. <laughs> Why did you go with your first dog over your second dog then? Now let's talk about this. And the older system, it got to be someone, a judge would call the office and say, well, what the hell does that rep know? He only showed basset hounds and he's going to tell me about chihuahuas. You know, I know more about chihuahuas than he'll ever know. Uh, excuse me, I read the standard. I've had experience showing them or carrying them or my wife showed them or whatever. I've had the experience with that breed. I know what it is and you don't. But you know, <laughs> even if I did show Basset out. So that's where it got to be argumentative. Now it's just a discussion. Very good. Question. Jan? I, I have a hey, question. question. Yeah. So I have a question. Just recently this week I read a paper that was about some low entry breed. And has anybody else seen this? Yeah, I want to find out who wrote that. It was fascinating thing because I had no idea that there's what 80 low entry breeds out of how many breeds do we have, Brian? Most of which I show. Well, almost a 200 now. Yeah, but still, it's a significant amount. And so, as judges talking to our existing, our our senior judge and our junior judge there, when you go into these low entry breeds, and part of the thing was that they're talking about, you're talking about. If you don't judge in six times, you get to be a judge of the low entry breed. I think we need to have less judges that know more about some of these breeds to help with these ones that are imperiled breeds. And so what we have, me being a low entry breed person, is that I have judges who's flinging papers at me and it's like, hey, can you sign my mentor stuff? And I make mentors go through, I have to work with them on two, maybe three shows before I'll even talk to them and, and get going, but they just want to get that rest of that group they're going to hand me this paper and want me to sign it. And I say, no, I want you to understand my breed because it is an imperial breed. There's not that many of them out there. And it's frustrating being a low entry breed to know that the next day they went to somebody else who just signed a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. So as judges, when especially you have a multiple breed, some of them, I'm sure in any group, there's low entry breeds and that you don't see that often. What do you do as a judge, you know, to kind of help keep these breeds from being imperiled because if they're not going to be successful in breed rearing, they're probably not going to get bred. And we're going to have less litters, we're going to have less conversion, and we're going to lose a breed. So do you take some extra time? Or I'm just curious. 
this this paper leave. Yeah, I, it was I an interesting paper. I'm still trying to figure out where that came from. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> which one of you guys wants to take this one? <laughs> Ladies first. So the Hound Group is about 50% low entry Yes, yes, it's a very uh, example. Right, and um, I just had my second Scottish Deerhound assignment, mm -hmm. no dogs. And I expect that as I go through the Hound Breeds, I'm going to have a lot of instances where I'm going to essentially get the breed, if the system stays the same long enough, where I'm essentially going to get the breed without having to put my hands right. on them beyond my preparation. So for me as a judge, what that means is I have to be willing to go the extra mile. I have to do kennel visits, I have to go to national specialties, I have to go to regional or club specialties, I have to find mentors and work with them over time. I think that for any of the breeds, including big entry breeds, the moment that you get given those breeds on permit is in some ways just the first day of phase two of your education. I'm permit for Rhodesian Ridgebacks, that's a big entry breed. To give you some sense of context, you have to have 10 points if you've got less than a breed, less than a group, to apply for a breed. When I applied for Rhodesians, I had 21 points. I've done sweepstakes, I've done multiple sweepstakes, I've been to nationals a couple of times, I've done probably five judges' education seminars, I've been mentored a lot in that breed. That doesn't mean that I'm an expert in Rhodesian Ridgebacks. It means that I went into that application fairly confident that the first time I walk into the ring, I'll recognize a good dog when I see it. But it certainly doesn't mean I'm an expert. With low entry breeds, it's gonna be much harder for me to get that depth of preparation. So then it's incumbent on me to just try to keep educating myself on that breed and go the places where they are. I just hope through this conversation that judges will take a little more time to think low entry breeds because they are becoming imperiled. It's like, what, there's like three litters of dandies every year or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. And there's no way to find majors, right. and, you know, it's, it's well, Norwegian Lindenhuis, they're yeah. outbreeding to different breed mm -hmm. because they can't get them in well. Yeah. So the breed is just going to die otherwise, and people aren't going to rehab them to go and get the puffins. Yeah. We don't really have any puffins here, do we? No puffins uh, here. Not on this coast. No. <laughs> but years ago, they had the same problem, not with the number of breeds, but they also had low entry breeds, and the AKC would have let you combine your sexes to count the points. Yes, but I don't know whether anyone's given that any kind of consideration. <laughs> I haven't heard yet. No, I've not heard. Although we rumors. talked about it this weekend, that, that might be another option to throw into the mix. But yeah. it's just a temporary fix, still. Yeah. For it judges ends up with champions, it doesn't end up with more better dogs. Right. Right. As far as education, the office, Tim Thomas is head of judges department in Raleigh, and he has a list of specified mentors for each low entry breed that can do a telephone discussion. If they're in Florida and you're living out here, you know, to do a kennel visit to just learn about a certain breed is, they understand that's expensive. So you can do a telephone conversation and then that person is authorized to sign off on your mentor sheet. So that helps. And I think that's being utilized more so than it ever has been. But to throw it back on what we discussed earlier, you guys as 
exhibitors, breeders that are going to go into judging, truly have to welcome these people in and take them in rather than just consider them as point fodder half the time. <laughs> you know, that you, you know, well, yeah, come to the dog shows because we need points. And then they come to the dog show and nobody talks to them. And these people go, huh? You know, what are we doing here? Everybody's got to play a part in this. Right. I think Brian makes a really good point, both Brian's, that it is incumbent on all of us to be nice to people. Just be nice, guys. I mean, really. <laughs> this isn't rocket science. Just be, yeah, peace. Peace, Kelly says peace. Just be nice, you know? You don't have to do something special. Just be nice. So I think that that's something that sometimes we lose track of when we're busy being mad because we didn't win or <laughs> mad because somebody else's dog won or whatever. Let's work on the be nice part. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Embark is a proud sponsor of Pure Dog Talk. DNA testing is rapidly growing amongst breeders. And given the importance of these test results to the health of not only each dog, but also that of future generations of dogs. At Embark, they believe it's critical to provide transparency in their testing methods that result in more than 99.99% accuracy for health tests. Embark's innovative testing platform enables the hundreds of genetic health and traits test results provided in Embark's products, while also creating research-ready data for use by canine health organizations and scientists. Embark's methods exceed industry quality control standards by also checking the breed, sex, and relatives of every sample to ensure DNA samples are correctly labeled and unique identity is recorded. In addition to quality control, this helps fraud prevention by ensuring the same dog can't be tested multiple times without Embark knowing. At Embark, they're proud of their world-class canine DNA testing service, and they're committed to continually raising the bar. They're on a mission to provide breeders and all dog owners with the high level of accuracy they need to optimize their breeding programs, manage the lifetime care of their dogs, and improve the health of future generations of dogs. Haven't used Embark yet? Get your first Embark for Breeders dog DNA test for $99 right now. You use the code TRYEMBARK99 at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. That's TRYEMBARK99 at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. More questiones. Another question, just a comment. Okay, just a minute, just a minute. We are extremely new exhibitors. We hire which is one of us since the morning, May of 2016, and traveled extensively with our breeder to Games Championship. Uh, we're now showing him ourselves to the Grand Championship, and I have to say that we felt very welcomed by the judges and other exhibitors entirely. Uh, I would say one thing as Still being somewhat of an outsider, I've noticed a lot on the owner handler side. There just seems to be kind of a disconnect in terms of it's an owner handled dog versus a professionally handled dog. And the owner handled dog gets select frequently, the professionally handled dog gets breed. There's still a lot of that out there. I'm new to this. I'm just kind of reporting what I see 
I don't know how any kind of a change is going to be affected on that, but I certainly see it being a discouragement for newer exhibitors that don't handle their dogs. But I mean, we felt very welcome, I will say. Okay, anybody want to take that one? Well, I'll comment. I've noticed that the owner handled competition initially started out as another ribbon to win for a lot of people. And people that like to show their dogs didn't mind getting select or getting best owner handled. It's really getting competitive out there. <laughs> and you owner handlers are raising your bar with your trimming. You're getting better at trimming. There's nothing wrong with, as an owner handler, to sit and watch a professional handler. Tag them, follow them around all day. Sit in the grooming area, sit and say, you know, do you mind if I just sit over here? Can I watch you trim today? Every handler is gonna say, pull up a chair, ask any question, but they're not gonna hold a forum just because they got the scissors out and they, you know, okay, anybody wanna watch me trim? I'm gonna trim now. They don't do that. But if you make an effort to ask, there isn't a handler out there that won't share. You just have to be a little bit more forward with it, that's all. And I think that's an important part. And that helps the rapport of all the exhibitors. And then when exhibitors are better educated and have better performances, whether they have good training classes or whoever their mentor is, I know as a professional, I welcomed the competition. I didn't like to beat the lackeys or whatever you wanted to call the lesser abled person, <laughs> you know, that brought in dirty dogs or brought in untrimmed dogs or whatever. I did. That wasn't competition for me. That was just collecting a ribbon for the day. And I didn't like that. I still don't like it. And I think this owner handled game has upped it. And. I know there was discussion that at some of the bigger shows they wanted to give ribbons for fifth and sixth in some of the bigger groups at bigger shows. They discussed this a couple years ago and they thought, oh no, we don't need any more ribbons. I always thought, you know, the guy that's got fifth or sixth is standing there waiting for a ribbon and he kind of looks up that line and he says, damn, I'm in good shape here. I'm playing with the big boys now. And he might go out and get a better trim on his dog or buy a better dog so he can continue to play with the big boys because that's fun to beat the big boys and girls. But you have to make an effort. Okay. We have I, time for... I, okay, I you have one question, and you people are going to have to all be honest. How many of you people have read your own standard? That's pretty good. Let good. me tell you. I've asked people after they improperly presented their own breeds. I said to them, how many of you have read your own standard? I had not maybe two out of about 20 that said they had. It's really sad. You have to read your own standard before you can sit there and criticize. You have to know what you've got and right. be honest with yourself. Right. You should be able to walk into the ring and say, if I beat that dog today, this guy doesn't know anything. <laughs> okay. I see questions, I'm coming this way, so, all right. 
I've got Cheryl and I've got Jen. And Sharon. Okay, here you go. Kind of going on that subject of not reading the standard, I've been really frustrated at some of the bigger shows lately looking at I'm a rare breed. And a lot of the dogs nowadays look totally different than 10 years ago. My dog 10 years ago. In your breed you're talking about. Yes, in my breed. I mean, they look totally different. And what's happening, I think, is judges are putting a certain dog, has or started style. putting a certain dog up. All these newbies started purchasing dogs that look just like this dog. So now when I was at Westminster last week, I almost wanted to cry because I could only, out of 17 dogs, I would only have probably taken five of those dogs at this point. And one of those dogs eight years ago was not even in the running as a dog I'd take home. And what I realized too, when I, in the last year or two, when I've gone to like the specialties, none of those people that are breeding those dogs or exhibiting them have been at any of the judging seminars, have been where they emphasize the standard. And now I don't know what's happening, but these judges are putting these dogs up that don't even, they're not this tight, they're too long, they're overangulated, they're unipped. So do we have a question? Well, I'm just like, how do you stop? I mean, that's one of the things I want to be as a judge is motivating me because I want to try to find a way to stop this before the breed as a rare breed is ruined and can come back. That's so where your I, parent okay. club comes uh, into play. Okay, so good question, Cheryl, and I've got two people anxious to answer here. Okay, so the first thing is we can only judge what you bring us. So if your breed is going off the rails, frankly, we can still only judge what you bring us. So unless you want to see us withholding a lot, we're unfortunately going to be judging the breed that's gone off the rails. So for me, it goes back to, and now I'm going to put my breeder exhibitor hat back on, if we are not good mentors, which often means having difficult discussions with people in our own breed yeah. to say, that dog that you're showing, have you thought about how this relates to our standard? Have you thought about, gee, you've got a basset that really is frankly lacking in bone. Have you thought about what breeding decision you're gonna make for your next breed to correct that? Because that's not right under our standard. I come from bassets, right? So we have to be mentoring within our breed to change that going off the rails direction. And I think that goes back to us as breeders before the judges can do much with it. Well, I think right after that, some people finally came up on Facebook and said, we gotta stop this, and started posting some pictures of, look at this eight years ago, this lineup, now look at this lineup this year. Right. I think I'm hoping okay. this okay. is gonna start. Right. Well, the whole thing is, there's a, let's say there's a dog that is the standard, and then you got 10 of these others, and that dog looks so different that the judges aren't even really looking at that dog. Right. They're afraid to make the decision that the odd one out might be the best one. Yes. It's easier to point to the ones that all look alike. Yeah, and so it's kind of scary now. I know. <laughs> you have to have confidence that the judging process is getting better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. One thing I think that I found as a handler I had a situation years ago showing the Great Pyrenees and the judge, there were two of them in the best of breed class and the judge came up and he opened the dog's mouth and he had two dropped teeth in the lower, right in the center and they were dropped. And he opens the dog's mouth and he says, oh, I don't like that. That's not right. Well, I got proactive and I just said, 
it's perfectly acceptable in the standard. And he was a very colorful gentleman, and he goes, <laughs> time out, real loud. And he goes and sits down at his table, and he takes papers out of his bag, and he's looking and looking and looking, and he reads the standard, and he says, there's nothing in this standard that allows that. And I said, what's the date on your standard? And he flipped it over. He said, well, 1939. <laughs> and I said, that standard's been adjusted. They've changed that standard to allow that. Time out! <laughs> and he called the superintendent over. They brought the book of standards. And I said, what year is in the book? The 1939. And he's going through his papers, and he couldn't find it. And my wife came up with the new standard. <laughs> and he said, oh. I can't look at it. It may have been doctored. Oh. <laughs> and it was the printed standard from the American Chemical, the pocket versions that they used to have, which were really great to fit for a briefcase. Great. No, I can't look at it. It might be doctored. And then he found the new standard, and he read it, and he says, you know, you're right. It is acceptable. <laughs> the other dog's still going best to breed. <laughs> but if you're not proactive, by knowing what your standard is, and a judge happens to open his mouth and say something like that, it opens the door and it establishes a dialogue. And I think your approach to judges, win, lose, or draw, how you can approach them later, most of the judges will enter into a discussion with you. Polite discussion. Be polite. Don't go in there with your hair on fire and you're spitting and you're foaming at the mouth. And You know, go back to the setup, go back to your car, sit down, have a cigarette, whatever you got to do to calm down, and then come back and get in between classes, between breeds or hours or during the groups. Say, excuse me, Mr. Meyer, can we talk about Great Pyrenees today? And I don't know what the percentage would be, but a better number than not We'll say, sure, let's talk about it. But don't yeah. say, why didn't you like my dog? Right, yeah. yeah. Because you know what? After 100 or 150 <laughs> dogs, I'm not going to remember Booksy. <laughs> but if you want to learn about the breed, and you may find out the guy didn't have a clue what he's judging. Okay, that's why you lost. <laughs> you thought he was judging Pomeranians. You had great journeys. That's why you lost. Just thought it was short on life. Okay. Sharon, I know Sharon had a question. It's not exactly a question. It's more of a comment based on being a judge's education chair as well as a judge. When I do my judge's education, or when I did, I'm retired, but the first question I asked, how many of you have read the breed standard? And like you said, they kind of look at you like, you know, deer in headlights. Really? Read, read, stand. <laughs> I do the same thing when I'm mentoring people. Have you read the breed standard? Oh, yeah. When was the last time you read the breed standard? <laughs> and it's amazing how many breeders and exhibitors, they read it when they got their first dog, and they haven't opened it since. Right. And, I mean, I've had my breed for 42 years, but every time I read the standard, something clicks again as to its importance or basically lack of importance in the overall picture and like that so for people who are being mentored or people who are mentoring i think that's a really important question particularly in how recently read your standard. <laughs> i like that karen 
So I don't really have a question, but I bring up Stuart a lot. I'm the chief bring Stuart for several shows. And I get a lot of people who, I need 75 dogs to be a steward for to become a judge. And I tell them that they don't want to do a full day's work, that it isn't really worth doing, and that I encourage all of the people that want to be stewards not just to do the basics. The more you steward, the better you learn procedure. And I have learned so much about breeds that I would have never paid attention to, the terriers especially. I read the standard about spanning, but I had no clue it was. And I probably stewarded for terrier judges for a long time before I saw a judge do it. And after he was done, I asked, what were you doing to up the dog? And he took the time to show me how to do it. And I judged a match a couple months later and the terrier people were just amazed. It's just, you learn so much by interacting with the people. And I read standards all the time because you always are learning something new. It's like, why is that dog doing that? And then it's like, oh, well, they're not supposed to. It's just flashy. <laughs> or they're doing that because it's the correct thing to do. I don't know. I used to read breed standards for fun. That was like what I did. So I don't know about you guys. Okay, more questions. We're reaching the end of our appointed hour. Our judges will turn into pumpkins if we don't let them go soon. Two comments from the middle, Brian. Okay. The first thing is you have to remember that judging is subjective. Look around and the person across from you or in back of you may have the same breed as you. And I'll bet you you have difference of opinions on what happened today or whatever. And the other thing is the adjectives that are used in the standard, all the adjectives that are used, what does moderate mean to you, or you, or you? They'll probably come up with three different answers, or however many people are in here. And what moderate is? Absolutely. Is an example of an adjective used in many standards. Sylvie, any final remarks? So I'm a pretty new judge, and when I judge particularly my permit breeds, which is most of them, <laughs> I will often ask exhibitors after I'm done judging, I can see that you're the breeder of several dogs that are related. How would you line up your dogs? I hope I never see that on Facebook, that I've done that, and that somehow it means I don't know what I'm talking about. Because what it really means is, I really care about your breed. I really want to understand your breed. If you're a breeder and I know that you've had litter mates in, I'm really interested in how would you have placed those dogs as a breeder? What would you think? Because I like talking about how I place dogs in my breeding program. You know, why did I keep this one and send this one away? Why should this one go to one home and this one go to another? To me, it's all an extension of talking about dogs. So, you know, give judges the benefit of the doubt that when we ask you those questions, it's not so much that we don't know what we're talking about, it's that we want to have a deeper understanding of where your breed is coming from where you want your breed to go, what you want your breed to be like. Mr. Bryan? I just wanted to note that anybody that has any questions at any time, don't be afraid to come talk to me. I'll do my best to explain the situation or what can be done or what can't be done, what's going to count for your judge's application, what's not going to count for your judge's application, what you have to do. We've just had our field rep conference in Raleigh the last three days, and we're chock full of 
mind expanding <laughs> stuff now that uh, we love to pass on. So don't be afraid, and, and I don't bite, and I'm a nice guy some of the time. Most of the so time, yeah. I just wanted to lay that out for you all. All right. And I would second that. I've known Brian since I was showing for about a second and a half because, of course, I showed Bassett's and he beat me all the time. Uh, <laughs> Tony show, <Sharp>, Brian. <laughs> Which wasn't hard by handling skills, but he doesn't bite. No, absolutely. He's a good one. All right. Thank you all. Have a great night. Thank you. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.